Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. I'm your host this week, Jensen Beeler of Asphalt and Rubber, and joining me is the very esteemed Mr. David Emmett of Moto Matters. Hello, Jensen. I won't make the same joke again. Yes, we're doing this the second time around because I screwed it up the first time. So thank you for saving us from that joke, David. Also joining me is Mr. Neil Morrison from On Track Off-Road, Crash.net, Road Racing World, the man, the legend. Glad you got it right this time, JB. Yep, yep. It's all good. Uh, That's why you don't let me on the show very often. (laughs) Oh, we do have a good show for you today because we are in Austin, Texas. But before we get down to what is going to happen at COTA, we need to catch up because there was some racing action in Argentina that our listeners have not had a chance to listen to you fellas talk about. So let's just get right down to it, sirs. What happened? Well, Marquez won. (laughs) Yeah, I think what happened is what should have happened in 2018. It's just that none of that crazy stuff happened on the grid with, um, you know, uh, changeable weather conditions with Marquez stalling his bike. With that iconic picture of Jack Miller um, stand, sitting alone at the front of the grid, uh, looking back at people, what is it, six rows behind him? Yeah, and then um, a, basically a dry track with lots of wet patches, which made overtaking very difficult. We just had a, a dry race with uh, Marquez starting from pole position and he cleared off into the lead and never looked back. And I think that's what could have happened in 2018 had it not been for all those crazy events. Um, he just has, uh, Argentina is like the Saxon ring and like the circuit of Americas in some respects, he is just that good there. And he can pull these performances off. I think he was, uh, his lead was approaching 12 seconds in the end. But yeah, exactly. I mean, there are certain tracks where he is just better than everyone else. And not um, just better, like on another level. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, better as in, you know, three quarters of a second better, which is a bit insane. It's it, uh, To an extent, it was um, it run, reminded me a little bit of um, uh, Valentino Rossi, Phillip Island 2003, um, where he was, you know, having a bit of a dice, bit of a, a, bit, a, a bit of a battle, and then he was handed a, I think, a 10-second uh, penalty for passing under a yellow flag, and he just cleared off. Um, uh, ended up uh, winning by 15 seconds, which was enough to give him a five-second lead. Um, yeah, I mean... But this was just without the battling. This was without the battling. This was just, you know, let's just get out of here. And it was uh, it was quite remarkable. Which is, I mean, the good thing was that we didn't see much of Mark Marcus. Um, the uh, TV presenter or the, the, the TV director made the sensible decision to not focus on Mark Marquez focus on what happened behind because that was a pretty good uh, pretty good fight yeah it was and just to you know um, sum up Marquez I think we went through preseason and everything looked very close we saw the likes of Rins Vinales Davizios all looking very strong and I think those guys all will be strong through the year but I think Argentina was the first time in 2019 that we actually saw Marquez and Honda the full potential what they can do he was obviously recovering from his shoulder injury and that pretty serious surgery that he had last December all through preseason testing and um, I think if you're Rossi if you're Davizioso you're looking at that performance and you're thinking that it's um, it's quite ominous for the year ahead do you have a theory as to why Mark was so quick at Argentina uh, it's tough to know I mean other than the fact that it's just a very dirty track it doesn't get used that often um, we know that there's always essentially a day which takes the riders to bed the track in to lay some rubber down. It's always very dusty. You can see whenever they get offline, there's plumes of dirt um, coming up behind the back tire. 
the fact that the grip's so low and he's so comfortable at full angle in such conditions doesn't phase him at all. He likes to ride loose. Um, I think that that must be that must be it. But yeah, it's uh, for him to be that strong is. Um, and at a track that isn't anti-clockwise as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not a left-hander like Saxon Ring. Or Coda. Oh, yeah, or, or, or Coda. Um, it's it's just, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, there was just really no one, no one near it. Fortunately, there was plenty going on behind. Yeah, there was. It was a pretty good one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we had eight riders at a certain point, uh, all fighting for a second place, more or less. Always had the impression that Davizioso and Rossi were just a little step ahead of the other guys. And they definitely were the most clever out of that group because you had guys like Jack Miller um, and Franco Morbidelli who said that they felt they had the pace to go with Rossi and Davizioso but they just couldn't get positioned well enough. Um, Morbidelli for example was constantly getting passed by the Ducatis and Miller and Petrucci down the back straight um, didn't felt that he was doing a good job conserving his tyre and he could have been there at the end to pose a threat for the podium but just kept getting held up by the guys in front and Miller said that his strategy was basically wrong. He, through the weekend, in fact, I thought Miller was going to be the guy that was yeah. going to take it to Mark, almost. Maybe him and Crutchlow um, will maybe come on the call a little bit later. But um, Miller also admitted that his strategy wasn't so good. He just he said he got too involved in the battle. He should have let Morbidelli fight it out with guys in front of him and let them tire themselves out. And then he could have uh, prepared well for later on. Um, but um, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was very good. I mean, Rossi was was excellent um and i don't think his his second place was really ever in doubt he was just sitting behind of it so he always knew that move was incoming yeah and um yeah it bodes well for him i think yeah i think both what impressed me was for both david chosa and um and for rossi it was just total race management um david chosa was slowing the race up he was racing at his pace using the speeds to keep people behind um and then rossi was just sitting there waiting waiting looking uh understanding where he could get past where he needed to get past made the perfect pass um uh, on the last lap and made sure that there was no way that dobby could actually get back against her impressive uh, it was imp it was an impressive piece of proper racing between those two for the end and in the end it was um experience and probably a little bit of quality of rossi that uh, that came through i mean you know head to head rossi versus dobby Chioso, both on days where they're comfortable, I think Valentino Rossi's going to win most times. But not all the times, which is what makes it so great. Yeah. I, mean, I guess when you compare those guys to Morbidelli, um, to Miller, yeah. even to Rins, who had a fantastic race, probably should have been fighting for second place, if yeah, not. Yeah. I mean, Rins, um, his qualifying was just a, appalling, really. Um, he shouldn't be starting from that far back. Um, and he's had trouble qualifying before he can't push for for the fast lap and that puts him you know not uh, starting not from where he should be which yeah, is a shame because he had the pace it's his big weakness at the moment yeah. you'd have to say and suzuki's as well yeah um, because mir had a, a desperate weekend overall yeah um but it's been a while since we've seen um since we've seen rins kind of at the sharp end um in the dry in yeah. qualifying for sure um but yeah he certainly had the pace um to be up there um but in the end experience showed yeah, I think it, it felt like it was age and experience of Dobby and Rossi versus uh, sort of youth and exuberance and just excitement of being at the front. Jack Miller, um, Alex Rins, um, uh, Franco Morbidelli, uh, they're all 
wanting to be, uh, you know, they're all excited because they want to be at the front. And also Maverick, Maverick Vinales, he had a bit of a shocker. Yes, not for the first time. We're talking about Maverick Vinales and uh, that unfulfilled potential. Um, another puzzling display, really, it has to be said, because uh thought on Friday, I was quite impressed with how he managed the Friday because he was 18th in FP1. You thought, right, this whole new method, this smile for the cameras, be personable, uh, be approachable, um, don't be angry, uh, showing lots of pent-up frustration and aggression. Um, new crew chief, new rider manager, rider coach, sorry, I should say. Um, that was really put to the test. And then by, I think, Friday afternoon, he was third. Uh, he qualified well in the front row. And in morning warm-up, he showed a pace that suggested Mark actually was going to have a bit of a fight on his hands. And then it was just that uh, that same old thing, first couple of laps. He's nowhere to be seen. He's at the back of that group, I think, in eighth, ninth fight with Nakagami. Takes him a long time to be able to put a move on someone. He ends up on breaking himself in turn five. And then he's nowhere. And he's having to do all his work in the last couple of laps. And then he gets in a breaking duel with Petrucci in the final lap. And, you know, it all goes to all goes to hell. But it's perplexing because Maverick's run out of excuses. Now he can't point the finger at certain things that are going on. He can't point the finger at Yamaha for not following his uh, development device like he did in 2017. He can't point his finger at Forcada, his crew chief, as he did last year. Um, now he's got all in place that he needs, and it's it's the same the same story. So that makes you think that the answer is is Maverick. What was his mood like? Because we know, I mean, you you were the only one there. You and me both know that when you go to Maverick. Um, after the race, sometimes you can sort of tell by the mood uh, whether they've taken his shoelaces and belt away or not. <laughs> yeah, no, his mood. I think that's the one reason to feel optimistic if you're a Maverick Vinales fan because his mood was still pretty upbeat. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't too ashen faced. It was similar to. Um, it was similar to after Qatar, if you remember. There, um, he. He. he was honest about it. He admitted that he was the only Yamaha guy that was facing these issues. Um, he had a suspicion that it might have been a rear tire issue, but then, you know, we've seen Maverick suffer with this for so, so long and you think it must be him. Um, so I think the positives are that he wasn't too frustrated. Um, he had his chin up, let's say, and he was actually taking some responsibility for it. Um, and those are two things that didn't perhaps happen uh, in previous years. Um, but yeah, same old story. Potential's there, but same old story. David, I'm curious, looking at the results from Qatar and Argentina and how strong Mark Marquez was at both races. Well, I don't know if it was surprising in Argentina, but that gap was certainly quite substantial. I was certainly su surprised at where, how he was doing in Qatar. Does that divine the season for you? I think we're, we're all kind of in agreement that maybe Austin will be another Marquez round. That's three in a row. Does That seems like a pretty inform insurmountable start uh, i'm not sure it's insurmountable but it is worrying uh clearly the bike is good there it still has some problems um uh they've had to sacrifice a little bit of braking and a little bit of corner entry um uh, to get this improved acceleration um the bike's got more power uh, so it's got a lot more top speed. I think the Hondas, both at Qatar and uh, and Argentina, the the, the Hondas were uh, either the fastest or no, very the close. Fastest. Yeah, yeah. There you go. 
Um, so that's got to be a, a little bit of that's got to be a little a bit of a concern. There'll be tracks where uh, the Honda is more competitive. Um, however, there will also be tracks where the Honda will sort of still struggle. I think the most encouraging thing, if you like, is the fact that uh, Dovi was on the podium both times. Dovi being on the podium in Argentina is a big deal because he has had a bit of a shocker there all of the time. Uh, the fact that Valentino was, I mean, fifth in Qatar is bad, um, but second in Argentina is good. Um, and th the way that the, as close as the championship is now, uh, championships are won on your bad days, not on your good days. Um, so even though we are probably going to uh, be coming back to, our, to uh, Europe with Mark Marcus with a comfortable lead, if Dovi can have a good, uh, a good race in, uh, in Austin, if um, um, maybe Alex Rince can have a good race, if um, uh, if uh, Rossi can have a good race, if if Inyales can have a good race, um, if they can all be sort of on or around the podium, then there's still you know this this we've still got 17 races. It'll be 16 after Austin. That's a lot of racing. A lot of things can happen. Uh, you know, a mechanical can happen. That's what's going to be, um, and we saw some weird things. I mean, um, uh, Marcus's bike chucking a chain that never happens on a Honda. That's that's really really very odd. And then uh, Jorge Lorenzo is uh, is um, handlebar grip. his handlebar grip sliding off. I mean, that's it, it, it shouldn't happen. It should not happen, and it's it's strange that it did. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with you, David, because I think. Davizioso was a bit pissed off after the race in Argentina, but that was more just because he got nabbed on the last lap and he didn't have an answer for Valentino. But I think in the when he came away from Argentina and went and analysed the race back in Italy with his crew chief, um, I'm pretty sure that he would have thought, like, you know what, we've made giant strides here because I think he was approaching 30 seconds back of the race winner in 2018. And that was without Marquez at the front of the race. So had Marquez qualified in pole position, he would have been another 10 seconds up the road, probably. Um, so we're looking at a vast improvement at Ducati's end. Um, and he, he said that in, the, uh, in the, the press conference after the race, that I don't know how many seconds he was faster, but it was a considerable amount. And it's all about those, those bad days. If he can make third place his worst result, um, then he's going to have a chance in this championship fight because... What he needs to be doing, or he needs to be basically within, I would say, 20 points or 25 points of Marquez after the Saxon ring. And then there's a run of Ducati tracks we saw yeah. last year. If he can be within touching distance by the Saxon ring, um, then I think, you know, there's still all to play for. Um, but that's a big if with Marquez in this form. And the Honda definitely an improved bike with the engine, as strong as it is. Um, it's not even a, um, it's not even a cert that, tracks like uh, Spielberg will be Ducati tracks anymore. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, we saw Mark uh, uh, nearly beat, uh, uh, you know, ne nearly win there twice. Um, and so you'd have to think that with a little bit more horsepower, it'll make it, uh, it'll make Ducati's job just that little bit more more difficult. Yeah, but I think overall, um, yeah, Honda's improved, but I also think Suzuki's improved. I think Yamaha has definitely improved, despite us not seeing the full picture just yet. Rossi, you said, was fifth in Qatar, but really that was a fantastic race coming from 14th on the grid. Yeah. Um, had he qualified better, he could have been second, maybe. Yeah. 
Um, so Yamaha is definitely in better shape as well. Um, but it's just, uh, it's just Marquez, you know, he's just, I mean, he is the strongest rider of this generation. He is fast wherever we go. Um, and it's going to take, I think, a freak occurrence for him to, to not win. But then I'm not really saying anything new, I don't think, <laughs> by saying that. So, Neil, do you, do you think Marquez has learned anything in the offseason, especially with the shoulder injury in terms of managing the championship? Has there been a maturity gained in that process as well? Or is this the same mark? I don't know. I would say it's it's roughly the same mark. I would say if you take two or three instances out of last year you had a very mature all-rounded rider that could accept second or third whenever things weren't going his way um maybe there is a slight hesitation with regards to the the left shoulder i don't think we're going to see mark crashing 23 times as we did last year or 27 times we did the year before but then again he you know, he crashed quite heavily uh, twice, I think, in Qatar. Yeah. On the same day, he took a real knock to the left shoulder on the final night of testing in Qatar as well. Um, and he seemed to get up and, and, and was okay, was strong. Um, I mean, it seems to defy biology, really. Um, any physiotherapist or anyone involved um, with uh, rehabilitation, especially of the shoulder, was saying at the end of last year that he's done permanent damage to the joint. Yeah. Yet, what we've seen is um, Marquez just uh, carrying on from where he left off. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think he's learned to manage that anyway um, uh, with his uh, with the shoulder, and the fix will be enough to keep it in and, and give him more confidence. Um, but I think to your question, JB, I think it's uh, I think last year is was where we saw the really big step with Marquez. Um, that was the that that was the maturity where he learned. Okay, on a bad day, I'm on the podium. On a good day, I w- uh, I win. On the bad day, I'm on the podium. And that that to me is where he made he's he's made the biggest step now. And the other thing is, I think he's going to crash less because the Honda he doesn't need to as much. He doesn't need because the Honda is quicker. He doesn't need to take quite so much risk every uh, uh, on on corner entry. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think you're right. <clears throat> obviously about the mental maturity. We, we saw that last season. For me, it's very interesting to think about if the toll of the surgery or the act of the surgery or just the realization of like, you know, this, this Gumby Marquez that always gets back up after he crashes, if there's maybe some discussion in his head, whether it's, it's just mental or it's actually discussed with the team, like, hey, maybe don't find the limit by crashing every time. Take maybe a step back. But I think you're right with the Honda being a lot more competitive it would seem this season, especially in closing down the horsepower gap to the Ducatis. Maybe that means Marquez doesn't have to ride 10 tenths every session now or looking for that extra that extra edge. Maybe he can dial it back a bit, ride a little bit more in the comfort zone and pick his moments where he needs to step it all the way back up again. Yeah, but I mean, the, the way that he learns, because I, I wrote an article earlier this year uh, about the crashes and I went back and I watched every single crash of his from um, the 2018 season and uh, what I noticed is that almost all of his crashes um, are low speed low risk so he is crashing usually at under 100 kilometers an hour and when he's crashing he's already got his, his body really close to the ground so he's not falling very far so even though he's crashing a lot the risk involved is relatively low. Um, there was only he only really had one really big fast crash, and that was at Thailand when the um, uh, at turn five is it? 
Um, I can't remember the the fast the the, the 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 fast yeah, left yeah. after the um, turn three or four is it maybe yeah yeah, yeah yes four. four it's turn four and Mizano as well in qualifying yes yes yeah Mizano yeah and me, and that was where that was where he tumbled but even the, the even the the, the, the that was uh, it was quite quite a, a fast crash but the uh, the um, uh, the Thailand one was really really quick that was the only really sort of dangerous thing one where you look at other people uh, where they've been crashing and it's generally. Uh, well, they've been crashing fast enough to hurt themselves. It's generally fast crash uh, crashes, and that is not what Mark does. We talk a lot about the the Rossi leg dangle and how that's kind of transformed the sport. The elbow down, um, which I think you attribute to a number of, of riders, but um, it does seem like Mark is exploring a new way of 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 crashing and pushing that limit on the front end of the tire. Yeah, the, this is the trouble with the. Uh, I mean, the the thing is, it's about the professionalization of the sport. Every time someone finds a step, finds gets a little bit better, the people who come behind have to push further, have to find uh, another um, uh, another one tenth or another uh, detail, another thing. Uh, another way to beat them and that usually means pushing the limits even further so the person who is going to come along with and beat mark will find they'll be even more extreme we just don't know how we just don't know in what particular area they're going to be extreme but uh that that to me is the next step i have no idea who it's going to be but that's that that will i mean yeah marcus pushed the sport on valentino pushed the sport on Casey pushed the, the, the sport on, Jorge pushed the sport on. All of the things, they've all pushed each other further. And someone's going to come up behind Mark and push the same way. Yeah, although I think it's going to be some time before we see that because we've heard a couple of riders, some fantastic riders coming up through. Joanne Mir springs to mind, for example, um, won the Model 3 World Championship a few years ago, now a Model GP rookie. Um, outstanding talent. Um, bases his... Um, his off-track preparation on Marquez does lots of stretching, lots of yoga to try and make him as flexible as possible. Um, does very intense training on motorcycles, whether it's supermoto, motocross, at dirt track. Um, attempts to do similar things to what Marquez does, um, saving crashes, pushing the front at the absolute limit, uh, front slides, that kind of thing. Yet we don't really see it happening with someone like Joanne Mir on track. Um, if you think back to Marquez in Model 2, I mean, we're already seeing him do unbelievable stuff, mm. unbelievable things on the Model 2 machine. And then that obviously transferred into Model GP. I think it's just a, another worldly talent that it allows him to do that. No matter how much training you do away from the track on a supermoto bike, I don't yeah. think it's going to be preparation for when you've got a... Unbelievable physical talent. Yeah. Yeah. When you've yeah. got a Mitchell in front slick and, uh, you know, 260, 70 brake horsepower underneath yeah. you. Um, so yeah, I think it's, um, it, it is just otherworldly and it's, it's almost not something you can, you can teach yourself for yeah, a motor um, bike. Yeah. To me, the interesting thing is that the, now the focus on uh, the mental side, psychology. We're seeing more and more riders pick up sports psychologists. Maverick is working with a, uh, with a sports psychologist. He's not actually. Oh, isn't he? No, no. He said he was going to at the end of last year, but 
so far he hasn't done it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but the, uh, again, uh, uh, David Chioso working with the uh, with uh, with psychologists, and you're seeing real benefits with it. Petrucci working with uh, um, David Chioso's trainer, and also with his psychologist. Uh, to me, yeah, the, like between the ears, the, 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 the that's the next that's going to be the next step. Also, because it's such an incredibly motorcycle racing is an incredibly mental game because you're pushing yourself, especially. Uh, not just the feedback and all the rest of it, but through all sorts of fear barriers, all sorts of barriers, all sorts of um, uh, mental barriers uh, about understanding, managing risk, and understanding the risks that, that, that you're taking, and uh, uh, that sort of thing. To me, is 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 really where where the next step is going to come from. Yeah, and dealing with pressure, dealing with management, how you manage the weekends, yeah, um, how you manage your mood, maintaining a positive outlook. I mean, it's on. It's kind of basic, but. Uh, absolutely crucial. Yeah, and uh, something which has been hugely neglected in the past. Uh, David, I want to just go back for a second. One of the things that struck me from Argentina was watching Valentino, you know, kind of uh, track down Davi. And it really seemed to me that maybe the jig is up a little bit for Davi on his strategy of slowing the races down and that managing that rear tire and, and and other riders knowing that that's that's the case and working around it and valentino obviously having a very strong mental well, strategy pick that up quite easily yeah i mean the, the thing is everyone knows that that's what what dovi's going to do um uh dovi is a good enough rider to understand that that's what that people are expecting that and to try to react however when you're up against valentino rossi at a track specifically a track like argentina where the the risk for the Ducati, I mean, the Ducati still can't carry the same corner speed as the Yamaha or all the rest of it. So it's still not as it's it, it's still not as manoeuvrable um, as the as the Yamaha as the Suzuki. So the risk for uh, Dovichoso at a track like Argentina is if he gets past after turn five, he's in trouble. Because it's, he doesn't have a place where, uh, an obvious place where he can outbreak, um, uh, the, the, the rider who's just passed him. Um, he doesn't have a place where he can use the speed. Um, Qatar was different because, uh, Dolly knows that if he gets off the corner all right, he can use the acceleration and the drive of the, of the, um, uh, or you can use the drive of the Ducati to actually, you know, stay ahead. Um, there'll be other tracks where he knows that he can use the braking because he's the latest of breakers. He's one of the best breakers on the grid. Um, so he knows he can use his braking to that, uh, to, to, to his advantage. But Argentina is, I think, particularly the circumstances of Argentina is where um, Dovichoso knows, knew he was at risk, and he knew that he could do nothing about it once when, once Rossi was part the past, and Rossi knew it as well. Rossi knew exactly where his strengths were. So it's it's I mean that's what's great about motorcycle race about and especially about this era. There are so many strong riders, so many well balanced bikes, um, but they're not all the same. They are all have weaknesses and strengths, and um, uh, if you understand your strengths you can use your strengths for you you can use the weakness of your opponents uh, against them uh, it's there's a little bit of jujitsu and i think that's that that makes it a little bit so uh, that makes it quite attractive great uh 
Let's move to, I think, maybe the, the biggest talking point from Argentina, which was a little jumpstart from Mr. Cal Crutchlow. Or, or not, as he would seem to say. If you listen to Cal, you would think that uh, nothing really happened. Um, he was completely in the clear, um, wrongfully uh, accused and penalized for, for this. Um, but yeah, can I just say that genuinely have some sympathy for Freddie Spencer, who's now the, the head of the FIM stewards panel, who was essentially responsible for uh, handing out the uh, the ride-through penalty that Crutchlow got. And uh, from all accounts, he got both barrels uh, from Cal after the race. We saw him storming through the Yamaha garage after, I think he had handed his bike over to the LCR mechanics and stormed through the Yamaha garage just so he could get to race direction as soon as possible so he could unload and um yeah i think we all know from cal's character that that is that would be something that something to behold um yeah i mean i feel great sympathy for cal in some respects because there's no doubt he had the pace for to be second on sunday um he didn't have a great qualifying i, I I don't think anyone could have lived with Marquez on, on Sunday, but I think Cal could have been a relatively comfortable second place. Yeah, I mean, I looked at his, I looked at his pace, and obviously it's different when you're coming through from the back because uh, for a start, after a ride through, you've got a lot of clear tracks, so you can just focus on your own pace. You don't have to fight with other people. Uh, but he was clearly, um, he clearly had the second best pace. Um, so he would have been, uh, at the very least, he would have been in the fight for the podium. Um, that's, Without doubt, um, uh, I, I mean, unfortunately, yes, I feel absolutely sorry for for Calcrutcher. He didn't deserve that penalty, but it's an automatic penalty. David, just so we're clear, can you can you give us the rules on on what the the jump start is? Um, anticipating the start is what it's called, um, and a rider who anticipates the start um, means that the bike is moving. The rules don't actually say very much about it other than uh, that if you anticipate the start, you get a ride through. And if you um, uh, if the bike moves on the grid and you come to a stop, then uh, the FIM stewards, um, everyone talks about race direction. It's not race direction. It's the FIM stewards, but race direction is much easier to, to, to just say. So basically, um, it's up to the judgment of the stewards uh, whether someone gained an advantage or not. The rules speak about gaining an advantage. Um, but that's only if you stop after but you move. But that's only if you stop after you move. Uh, and I think Cal, Cal didn't said, stop. Yeah, and also Cal said that he wasn't actually moving on under the power. Yeah, was he was moving because he was... Uh, balancing. Yeah, because he was balancing on his toe. Um, uh, again... But the rules don't say anything about that. They don't say anything about whether the clutch was engaged, or whether whether the throttle was open. I mean, basically, uh, it, it's yeah, it's an automatic penalty. There is no rule for it. And if you look at if you watch the uh, the the footage which Dorna put on uh, put online on on Twitter, which was a smart move because it did actually allow everyone to look, you can see that um, he is that that he is. I mean, he's rolling centimeters like i have to admit i had to watch it slowing down and pausing it every half second about 15 times before i got a clear idea of what had happened and what the what the misdemeanor it was such a minor movement um you know it was incredibly unfortunate but there was the slightest yeah oh yeah exactly i don't think there's any doubt that he broke the rule sure um, the, the the problem is that if you do break the rule, 
the penalty is a ride-through, full stop. And in this case, a ride-through was incredibly disproportionate. But then the trouble is, if you replace that with a... Um, uh, if it looks like there's no advantage gained, then, you know, I don't know, five seconds or the long lap penalty or whatever... Um, then you're, it's a judgment call. And in fact, it would be much worse because someone would not be given the long lap penalty. They'd be given the, uh, 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 the ride through and then they would be up to Freddie Spencer to shout at him and, uh, um, call him all sorts of names, um, because they felt they should have had the long lap penalty and not there. Yeah. Where did, where does it stop then? Where do you draw the line yeah. in jumping the start? That's, that's the thing for me as a lawyer. The lawyer in me loves the simplicity of this, of this rule. It's so, it's, it's, it's just a couple sentences. Yeah. It's just so black and white. You were moving. You, you can't anticipate the start. What does anticipation mean? You were moving. Done. Yeah. He was moving. He anticipated the start. The start. This is the penalty. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I agree with you, Dave. Like, I, like, there's a sympathetic side of me that says, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, the penalty was completely disproportionate. Absolutely disproportionate. But, but that's the rules. Ends the rules. Sorry, buddy. It, yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like being caught. It's like being done for doing. I don't know, seventy-two in a seventy at midnight, where there's no one else, and you're caught by a, and you're caught by a speed camera. Um, yeah, that's the law of the land. Uh, and you weren't doing any harm, and there was no danger, and all the rest of it. But that's that's. The law and you were caught. Would it be better, for example, to just give a 10 second penalty to anyone, no matter how badly they jump the start? No, because then, I mean, for example, uh, we remember Jorge Lorenzo's comedy, um, False Start, which was absolutely fantastic at Cota uh, two years ago, three, four years ago. No, no, 2014. 2014. Yeah, yeah that's a long time ago. Um, but he basically, I mean, he jumped the start by about, uh, I don't know, half an hour. Uh, he started shortly after the Moto Two race finished. Um, yeah, half an hour before warm up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was uh, uh, the problem is that was such a it was such an outrageous um, um, sort of a violation of the rules that are you going to give that a five second penalty or whatever? Um, it, it, the problem with rules is whenever you, and we see this with aerodynamics, you write some rules down and someone reads the rules and goes, oh, right, here's a little loophole. We'll use that one. And then, um, uh, that, that completely, you end up in, in a complete mess. You, people are always going to look for an advantage, especially extremely competitive athletes who feel that any rule is basically aimed at personally at them and it's the only thing stopping them from winning a world championship I, I still think the best rules are the simplest rules and the second I mean you look at look at racing look at look at what the the goal is from say an engineer's point of view here's the rule book here's the things you can't do here's the aerodynamics here's the wheelbase here's the tires okay that's the table now find your advantage yeah and it's the same thing for the riders okay here's the rules that we're all going to ride by I'm going to find my advantage. Yeah, I mean, to, to come back to Dovizioso, because, I mean, Dovizioso um, uh, does not win the race by being uh, the fastest rider on the track. He wins the race by um, uh, going as slow as possible, but being the first to cross the line. Because, uh, you know, the, the, MotoGP, the MotoGP rules are simple. You start, and then the first rider to cross the line wins. 
whether it takes you 43 minutes to do your 110 kilometers or whether it takes you four hours and 30 minutes to do your uh, 110 kilometers irrelevant doesn't matter it's the first person to cross the line um that again that simplicity it's that simplicity of rule it's about finding your advantage how you can cross the line in front of your uh, uh, in front of your rivals and if you start putting gray areas into the punishment then you start gaming the punishment itself yeah exactly yeah exactly then what you happen is at the end of every race because someone was moving and they'll say yeah but if you look at the data my clutch isn't quite engaged and then you start getting uh, uh, you, you start getting to lots and lots of arguments about who is um, whether it was an advantage how much of uh, how much of an advantage was it was it just a really good start because quite often i mean in fact if you look at riders who get a really good start there is no way their their reactions are that good they just got lucky they just they're so used to the timing of it that they are going before the red light is i mean their their brains are telling their body parts they're telling that you know the um the 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 wrist and and hand you know the right wrist and left hand let the clutch out um uh, apply the throttle start riding you're ready to go um uh, but they're doing that before the before they've actually before their brain has registered that the red light is out um the reaction time i think for everyone is about two tenths of a second or a little bit under two tenths of a second say so these are elite athletes and they are doing it in uh i don't know a bit, Fifteen hundredths of a second. Even then, they're still reacting in you know five hundredths of a second. So it's their something is working faster than 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 biologically possible. Just like you, JB. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a funny man over here. It's a funny, funny man. Well, sir, then you can start us off on this next section. What is going on with the MSMA? Is it irrelevant? What's the future? <laughs> Tell me what's up. Um, it, it seems like it's a little bit of a mess now that the aerodynamic genie is out of the bottle. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, um, I think the the decision by the four factories, Honda, Suzuki, KTM, and Aprilia to um, to basically launch a protest straight after the race in Qatar, um, and then to take. They reject the protest to appeal that and take it to the MotoGP Court of Appeals. I mean, that is a pretty aggressive course of action. Um, certainly one in the public domain, one that costs money, one that gets ugly, um, and one that certainly threatens to undermine the relationships that keep the MSMA together or keep people uh, together in the MSMA and um, agreeing on certain things, certain guidelines. Um yeah, you'd have to say it's um, it does look like it, it's in a difficult situation. It's hard to imagine, um, you know, a representative from Honda sitting across from Gigi Delinia in the coming weeks and agreeing on a certain course of action because of what's happened. It's hard to imagine someone from Aprilia sitting across from uh, Gigi Delinia in the coming weeks after all that's gone by because there really is a lot of bad blood. Um, and... Yeah, it's uh, it's it's tough to know where it goes from here because it's been a pretty political fallout and pretty ugly. Um, and I don't think it's done. Uh, it's been good for the image of the sport, really, in particular. Um, it's been airing 
dirty laundry in public. Yeah, yeah but I mean, the, the, the problem is with the structure of the sport because the way that the rules are made is that basically the... Um, uh, and this was when the switch to, uh, when Grand Prix racing switched from two stroke to four stroke, one of the, uh, things which the factories negotiated was that, all right, we want to switch to, uh, to, to four stroke, uh, but we want control of the technical rules because, uh, we understand the, you know, four strokes much better than, than the FIM. Um, so the MSMA, or the rules were written such that the MSMA, the manufacturers, uh, would agree on a set of technical regulations, and if the MSMA were unanimous, then those rules would be adopted by the FIM uh, and written into the rule book. And that worked fine, um, especially when there were only three manufacturers, or three or four manufacturers, and especially when there were, you know, three Japanese Japanese manufacturers, where there is a uh, a an unspoken hierarchy. Honda made the rules. And the other Japanese factories went along with that because um, they trusted Honda. And Honda understood that it was their role to um, uh, provide a responsible set of rules for, uh, for everyone to follow. Um, that doesn't work when you've got six manufacturers. And it certainly doesn't work when you've got six Jap uh, three Japanese and three European manufacturers who have very, very different cultures and very different approaches. Um, and it certainly doesn't work with... Gigi Delinia, who um, is always looking for an angle uh, on the on the rules, trying to understand where he has freedom to act, and the more restrictive you make, you just open up new um, uh, new uh, new loopholes, really. So that's I think that's pr created an enormous strain. And if we want to clamp down on aerodynamics, uh, then the rules. Ha or the proposals for a rule have to come from the MSMA, that the MSMA can't agree amongst themselves. Uh, and the FIM absolutely doesn't have the experience to be writing aerodynamic rules. Um, uh, I mean, I have a huge amount of respect for Corrado Ceccanelli and for, and for Danny Aldrich, but they are not um, uh, experienced aerodynamicists with 15 or 20 years of, um, uh, of working with aerodynamics and understanding where, the, where there is an advantage. Yeah, I think another thing that we can glean from this whole episode that came from uh, from Qatar and the protest that followed is that the protocol or the procedure to to police such things is not really in place. Um, we we saw that with with the with, with Honda spoiler which they got homologated at Argentina. Yeah, I mean it just descended into farce really, didn't it? Um, I think Honda took a proposed a similar swing arm device uh, to Danny Aldridge on the Thursday. Um, they were asked what its purpose, its main purpose was for. They apparently said it was aerodynamic purpose. It was rejected. They went back the next day with what we believe is pretty much the same design, but they said the purpose was different. It was for cooling the real tire, and therefore it was it was accepted. And if you were to listen to Lucio Chacanello in Argentina, um, they're going to debut it this weekend at Coda with uh, with Cal Crutzlow. Um and that's just because of what they've told Danny Aldridge, what they say their intention is. And if that's how you police something, if it's policed by <clears throat> the FIM technical director taking a factory's word that, oh, this is their intention, uh, then I don't think it's really in a good place. Especially, you know, we're, we're at a MotoGP is a world championship. And you can say what you like about Massimo Rivola coming in from Formula One, a pretty new CEO. Um, 
but he does have extensive experience in Formula One. And I think he's quite right to say that, yeah, the procedures aren't in place to, to police this because are you really supposed to, are you, can you really take a factory at its word if they say, oh, no, it's for this, it's not for this? Oh, absolutely. But the trouble is the people who have to fix that are the MSMA. They have to come up with a set of proposals. That's the way that it is at the moment. I mean, who else are we going to trust to write um, extremely complicated regulations to police this? I mean, even uh, the fact is that the, 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 the rules or the, the guidelines which Danny Aldridge issued, which I saw, only talk about attachments to the swing arm. So, um, all right, ban attachments to the swing arm. Um, I would imagine you would get some, especially when they're carbon fiber swing arm, you just uh, create the whole thing in a specific shape. And if you want to um, uh, use that uh, swing arm in some places, uh, uh, but not another, then you would just swap the swing arm out. It's it's so easy to uh, it, it would you know at the moment the rules are so easy to game. But that's because the rules are not clear uh, at all. And the only people who are um, actually qualified to write a set of regulations are the MSMA. But the MSMA are fundamentally split between especially Ducati, who uh, really feel that uh, it is worth pursuing aerodynamics uh, as an area of, uh, of, of development, and especially... Um, well, the rest don't feel that way. Yeah, exactly. They're completely opposed to that. Exactly. And, I mean, one thing KTM I... KTM are completely opposed to yeah. Aprilia, say that it's a budget thing. Yeah. They don't have, well, they claim they don't have one specific aerodynamic engineer working for them. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, uh, a few years ago when Ducati first came out with their wings, uh, I think um, it was still uh, Shuhei Nakamoto who was the uh, head of HRC, and he said, if Ducati want to get into this, um, if they want to get into a, a spending war on aerodynamics, you know, please go right ahead because Honda have got a, they've got their own wind tunnel. They don't have to use anyone else's wind tunnel. They've got a whole uh, barrage of F1 aerodynamics uh, and, and all that experience house. They can afford to actually uh, get into a spending war on aerodynamics and they believe that they would beat um, Honda. But they don't, they don't want to do it because it is, you know, it's, it's just money. It's just, it's just, and marginal gains are available if you spend more money. I'm curious if we could just do a little straw vote on where you guys stand in terms of having aerodynamics be a part of MotoGP. Are you for it or are you against it? In a limited, like in a, a limited capacity, in terms of um, if you have it on the fairing, I think that's that's cool. You can still be quite innovative with the shapes that you have with the fairing. Um, but then adding to other parts of the bike, then you're straying into territory, which is, again, what you were just saying there, David. It depends on how big your checkbook is. Yeah. I mean... To me, the question is, uh, it's, it's almost irrelevant because the thing is, Pandora's box is open. It's too late. You cannot put the genie back in the box. Um, aerodynamics are a part of the sport. And if you ban the use of attachments or whatever, or wings or fairings, whatever, uh, what will happen is that, uh, I mean, the only way that you can ban aerodynamics is to make them race naked bikes. And they or are a spec fairing. Or a spec fairing. Yes. Or a spec fairing. That would go down. That would not go down well. But a question for you though, JB. I mean, yeah. you're much more knowledgeable about the, uh, about production motorcycles than we are, but you know, the motorcycle industry as a whole. Do you believe that there is a role for aerodynamics 
or aerodynamic research in road-going motorcycles? Yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of, that's a good question, David, because it, I was just at Mugello while you guys were doing Argentina. I was at Mugello riding the new Aprilia RSV4 1100 factory. Name dropper. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big name to just to drop, sir. But the, what's interesting about that bike is it, it's got a set of winglets. It also has an interesting set of um, carbon fiber air ducts for the brake discs or for the brake calipers, I should say. Um, but at a track like Mugello, it's you can start to see some of the benefits of, of having winglets. And I, <clears throat> I haven't had a chance to ride the Panigale V4R yet, which is the other winged bike in the production side of things. But I imagine the experience is rather similar. And for me, I walked away from Mugello very much with, the sense of one, I don't know if I enjoy a 214 horsepower superbike any more than I enjoy a 200 horsepower superbike, which I'm not sure I enjoyed much more than a 180 horsepower superbike. The diminishing returns on what we're doing with the engine, I think, are very real. Um, the state of progress on the electronics are quite high. I don't know what the next thing is beyond cornering ABS, beyond IMU, uh, augmented traction control algorithms with uh, electronically adjustable suspension. I think maybe the next thing is fully active suspension, maybe adaptive suspension. But that that takes a company like Olin's to come on board or WP rather than a manufacturer, and that creates its own can of worms. So the only place I see where superbikes on the production side can start to differentiate themselves, can start to plow into new areas, is with aerodynamics. And it was very interesting the day before we did our, our press launch at Magello, they did the Aprilia did the what they're calling the Aprilia All-Stars Day, which was kind of just like a fan fest at the track. And on display, they had their RS660 concept, which also has... Um, kind of like a teaser design for what Aprilia is calling its active aerodynamics package. And so, you know, I got to spend a lot of time up close with that bike and it's a very interesting machine that has a very complex uh, fairing structure. It's got a lot of ducts and supposedly those ducts will start to be able to be actuated. And that opens up a lot of possibilities on what you can do with a motorcycle. And there's a lot of talk that that'll be on the next iteration of the RSV4, which will probably be out in 2021 when Euro 5 starts becoming a regulation. So from the consumer side, like, what am I supposed to get excited about? I don't know if I'm going to start getting excited about 220 horsepower, 225 horsepower, 230 horsepower, because on the track, like, it's just not usable anymore. You know, the electronics become such a huge part of it that for me, when I was going around Mugello, this, this amazing fable track, like you said, you know, dropping the name, it maybe wasn't the most enjoyable experience for me because I'm just wrangling electronics the whole time. And I'm just wrangling a motorcycle that's just so much more of a beast than the last generation but maybe having electronic or an aerodynamic package maybe that one helps tame the beast maybe two that helps add enough novelty and newness and features that kind of satiates the technological cravings that we have kind of as motorcyclists so i'm all for it because i don't know where we go if we don't otherwise otherwise we have to start going the other way with weight where we start saying okay like a 400 pound superbike is too heavy. It has to be 350 pounds. And that means carbon fiber fairings. Um, carbon fiber fairings means carbon fiber frames. It means carbon fiber swing arms. It means uh, more composite materials, more, you know, alloys that are, that are far too expensive, which just pushes motorcycles to the extreme on cost, which is already an issue in the space. So, well, I mean, the one thing which I find interesting, and I mean, you probably know better than I do, 
you mentioned Euro 5. Uh, Euro 5 has um, uh, noise emissions. It has uh, exhaust emissions, uh, a whole bunch of things. Um, but those are coming in waves. Understand that. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, um, aerodynamics can help reduce drag. Which can help reduce noise. Right. Uh, it can also, also, you know, reducing drag reduces exhaust emissions because it takes less fuel to uh, achieve the same sort of the same sort of speed. And I wonder how much of that actually goes over, not so much to the superbikes, but also to the commuter bikes. Maybe if you can find, if you can manage air, if you understand better how to manage airflows. Um, that would have a knock-on effect through your uh, through your development change right down to your road bikes. Look, I don't know, but I re do remember talking to uh, uh, Nakamoto years and years ago before Spec Electronics came in. Uh, I asked him, you know, would Honda withdraw if, they, if Spec Electronics came in? He said yes. They haven't, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but he said one of the things about Spec uh, about which they learn about electronics. Is about operating on a partial throttle, uh, about running uh, running a bike on a partial throttle, and that had that was not. I mean, it, yes, that's really beneficial for their for their fire blade, but it's much more beneficial for all of the millions of scooters which they run, which are also uh, use uh, electronic ignition, and where it actually makes a huge amount of uh, or electronic injection, fuel injection, um, and electronic ignition by understanding the uh, how combustion. Uh, partial throttles. That's partial throttle is where all of those scooters get uh, tend to get used and tend to have the the the, the biggest pollution. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot that can be gleaned from from racing that can trickle down. My my always my pushback now is the the investment that we make into thermic engines is a lost investment because you know we're seeing we're seeing regulations from the European from the European Union. We're seeing pushes from the manufacturers you know i don't know what the date is on when motorcycle manufacturers will have a purely electric lineup but it's it's within the next 20 years yeah and it's within, years. within my lifetime, it's within and, I'm lifetime. Old, and i'm old you're a little old, you're a little on the older side um no i'm old i'm officially old i mean you know <laughs> i'm over 50 and anyone over 50 is old because when i was 20 i thought anyone over 40 was old therefore i'm old fair that's fair but you have to understand, like this is this is we're at the the very end of times when it comes to to internal combustion engines, electrics or some other form of drivetrain is is going to have to take over, and that's what regulations like Euro Five are, are truly pushing for, where it's going to be so cumbersome to make an internal combustion engine that you then replace that with an electric motor, um, and battery technology seems to be catching up quite quickly, so. I mean, I, I sit there and say, like, okay, so again, like, why, why are we pursuing this, these engine changes, this partial throttle? It's like, okay, that's great and all, and that's a great side effect. It's a side benefit, but we know where the road's going, yeah, but, but this and is maybe that's something that aerodynamics can help push forward. Exactly, because what are some of the problems we've seen this with the uh, with, with the motor e-bikes already? One of their biggest problems was actually cooling the battery. So, um, uh, cooling the batteries somewhere where, where Aerodynamics could make a really big difference, um, uh, and again, reducing drag can make a really big difference in battery life. If you can get you know one or two percent less drag, that means more mile, uh, more miles between charges. Yeah, 
It'll be interesting to see. I mean, talking about cooling the battery, it's actually a really complex issue. And I don't know if it's we've got the time and the scope for this podcast, but it's not just enough of moving more air around the battery. It's it's voltages and amperes and how physically big the battery size is in terms of kilowatt hours, how um, how the motor has uh, continuous power versus peak power. There's a lot of factors in there, and a lot of that comes down to cell choices, uh, design choices, performance choices. It's uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I, I, personally, like the, the the geeky nerdy side, I'm excited to kind of see where where Moto E takes us because simple problems like that are actually really complex, and it'll be interesting to see how different parties, you know, figure solutions out. Uh, with that, guys, do we want to move on to looking at the Austin GP? Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, sure. yeah okay, yeah. a little excited, maybe a little hungry. <laughs> a little, little Texas barbecue in our future here. We, we are in Austin. We are a stone's throw away from the racetrack. This is a circuit that uh, probably should just be deeded over to the Marquez family. Uh, it feels like he owns it every year. It's, it's an amazing record of victories, and I don't think, I mean, we're sitting here on a Wednesday. We haven't talked to a single rider here on the U.S. soil. I think we're all feeling like we know who might be winning the the race on Sunday. Um, Neil, tell me your thoughts on that. It, you know, is there any question of Marquez's supremacy? Is there something that can throw a wrench in it? Is there someone that can give him a challenge, a dark horse, or where are we at? I don't want to be doom and gloom, but I think if Mark can fight with Davizioso all, all the way to the final corner in Qatar, one of Honda's notorious weak circuits. Uh, and win in Argentina by nine seconds could have been 12 had he not celebrated and uh, eased up through the final corner. Um, I, I find it really difficult to see anyone getting anywhere near Marquez on Sunday, honestly. Yeah, and it's not just Cota, it's the US. He hasn't been beaten on US soil since 2010 um, uh, on a 125 yeah. uh, at Indianapolis, I think. Yeah, uh, he crashed you know, there, I think. He crashed out there when he was, you know, fighting for the lead. Fighting for the lead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so there you go. Moto2 unbeaten, MotoGP unbeaten at three different tracks. Uh, this track unbeaten since we started coming here in 13, I think. 2013 yeah. was the first yeah. year. So, yeah, I mean, nobody's going to beat Mark Marquez here. Uh, the only person who can beat Mark, Mark, Mark Marquez around Cota is Mark Marquez. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think when you look at the the layout of Cota, it's a very specific um, track layout, obviously. Um, and... I mean, it is obviously tailor-made for him. It's anti-clockwise, first of all, and we know Marcus has passed, or a lot of his training away from the track in previous years was on um, anti-clockwise dirt track ovals. Um, the first sector has those really high-speed changes of direction. We know that Marquez is so agile. Uh, the Honda also works quite well in that, in that sector, has to be said. But Marquez himself is so agile. He's so fantastic and able to get his body off the side of the bike and to switch it to the other side. He just you know, creams them through there. And then the fact that there are several very, very heavy braking points on the track. And we know that the Hong does great strength through the past couple of years. And indeed, Mark's strength is going into corners, late braking feats. Uh, no one can match him there, really. Um, so you've got several different factors here that contribute to him being as strong as he is. I mean, the interesting thing is, when we talked about Mark's injury earlier, the the, the, the interesting thing is going to be going through that section because, uh, uh, I mean, every rider yeah, will tell you point. that is the most demanding section of racetrack on the calendar. Um, and it is, I mean, we're really going to see his fitness 
going through today. If he starts to fade in the second half of the of the uh, of the race, then we'll know how much it is. And I think anyone who is carrying an injury is in real trouble. And I'm looking at you, Jorge Lorenzo. And yeah, and just to add, David Marquez after the race in Qatar started doing motocross um, work training um, away from the track, and he hadn't ridden a motocross bike since before his operation at the end of last year. Um, and he said that for MotoGP after Qatar, on a MotoGP bike, fine, no issue. But motocross, he was still too early in his development. So that does give you an indication that... He's not there yet. He's not completely... He's not 100% fit. And to be honest, I think he's been... He's putting a, a brave face in the whole thing. You know, after the final Qatar test, he was saying, you know, this is case closed. We shouldn't be talking about this anymore. I'm perfectly fit. I think that's... Obviously nonsense. He's putting a brief his case up. closed. He wants to close it in his mind, which means getting us to all to shut up about it. Yeah, and to be fair, he's doing a good job. It would be different if he was finishing 15th. Yeah. Well, if I can play devil's advocate just for a second and understand that I don't fully believe what I'm about to say, but just for the sake of argument, you know, listening to you talk, David, I think you brought up a good point. You know, We're talking about Marquez as if he's the same Marquez from last season and the season before that. And, and you know, listening to you, Neil, talking about the Honda, you know, the Honda has made a lot of strides, but we know that this is a game of compromises. And so I'm very curious to see if if the same Marquez shows up in Austin, Texas, if the same Honda shows up in, in Austin, Texas, that we've seen in the past, and whether or not there's some X factors that have changed just enough maybe to make this foregone conclusion, maybe not so foregone. I don't think so, because 2015, the Honda was a pig. He cleared off one at a canter. 2016, the bike was an absolute dog. And he was actually, he, you know, he cleared off. And I think Danny Pedrosa would have finished on the podium that year had he not taken out Davizioso at the first turn. Yeah. So this, yeah, bike, I, this, this year's bike is, is far from a dog. Yeah, exactly. There, I mean, the, the only, well, the, the only thing that might happen is someone will run into him into the car park. <laughs> to be fair, though, I do think it, we have some interesting options when we consider who's going to be fighting for second because Vinales has always been very good here. One, of course, uh, his first Moto2 race, sorry, his second Moto2 race um, yeah. at Coda in 2014. Um, I really, you know, you, you wonder about those certain incidents in the past, you know, certain historical incidents and think if that had turned out differently, how would the season have changed or panned out as a whole? And you do look back at 2017 and think, if Vinales didn't crash out of the, the Circuit of the Americas GP then, I mean, would his season have been that different? If he really pushed Marquez all the way there, would that have given him such a psychological advantage that who knows what could have happened afterwards? Probably. Yeah, exactly. and, and so so I think, you know, Vinales had a really strong second here last year. I think you take Phillip Island out of last season. Austin was his best race last year. Yeah. Um, so I think Vinales will be there. Rossi really likes Coda as a pretty decent record here in previous years um, yeah, and if there's a tr- if there is a track where which is going to suit uh, a bike which is agile and can change direction very very quickly it means the Suzuki is going to be uh, going to be good here and um, the and top speed of the Ducati yeah yeah so yeah, yeah exactly yeah Ducati yeah. if you compare it to the previous bikes uh Okay, it's still not on a par with Yamaha or Suzuki, but it does. I think it should be better equipped to deal with those fast changes of direction through the first sector than in many of the previous years here. So, yeah, I mean, uh, whether he clears off or not, whether Marquez clears off or not, it's still going to be a, an entertaining race because of the stuff which is going to be happening behind. Just like Argentina. Yeah. So give me your podiums. Uh, Mark, Maverick, and Vizioso. Hmm. David? 
I will go with Mark uh, Dovicioso and Rossi. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. And you, Jensen? Oh, I just don't know if Mark's going to be there. Of course Mark Marquez <laughs> is going to be there. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like this could be a good weekend for Cal. I think he might have yeah, some things to prove. That's a, that, that is a very good shout. I think uh, 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 I think Cal Crutchlow is going to be quick around here. He does, as you say. And the best way to motivate Cal Crutchlow is to um, give him something to complain about. And by God, that penalty was something to complain about. He's got a point to prove. He's the perfect underdog um here uh, again that's what makes him such a brilliant satellite rider he has to feel that the world is against him and uh, this has given him uh, something to prove so it might even i mean i don't think he could get close to uh, mark marquez but if anyone is going to uh, i suppose could anything prevent Cal, uh, uh, mark marquez from winning yeah cal crutchlow could decide he's going to try and win it in the first corner and take marquez out i mean that could be said for for quite a few riders possibly uh <laughs> I would love for Phil Jackson to write a second book about motivating athletes because I feel like a whole chapter could be could be dedicated to Cal Crutchlow because I think yes. that he's very much a writer that has to operate in adversity. He oh, has yeah. to be an underdog. That that's what motivates him. That's his, his raison d'etre. That's that's his, that's his jam. Hey, well, there was that, that, that brilliant uh, that brilliant video of him. Was it at um, uh, Argentina, Argentina last, last year. year? Don't ever doubt me. Don't ever doubt me. Exactly, exactly. But the thing is, why? Because he was using that to get himself, you know, like fired up. But first of all, and I, I always wondered who was doubting him that weekend. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone was. <laughs> I can't yeah. remember anyone doubting him that weekend. It was Lucy because she knows how to motivate him. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I, I don't think he'll be on the podium, but Austin's always been a very good track for Andre Iannone. I think he'll have a good result for Ooh, last last place in, in, in Argentina. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah you're, you're I, right, Jimmy. I mean, he's going to have a better result than his time in the past, right? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. pick my writers carefully. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think he's definitely not going to finish last here. No. No, no I don't. he's definitely not going to finish last year. Yeah, but, and, um, to, and to be fair, if you look at the top speed charts in Argentina, I think Alicia Spargo was, a pretty, was fourth fastest. Yeah. And okay, fair enough. He spent most of the race in his brother Paul's slipstream sitting behind him. So there is that to take into factor. But uh, that new Aprilia engine in fifth and sixth gear is, is really come on leaps and strides. And we know that, you know, Coda, that massive long back straight. I mean, yeah, I think Aprilia, you know, could be lower end of the top 10, maybe even, uh, you know, seventh, eighth. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, this is this, anyway, this yeah. is what is so great about this era of MotoGP, because I mean, Argentina, all six manufacturers in the top ten, and okay, we had you know uh, we had two crash, uh, two Yamahas take each other out, but that would have put you know all six manufacturers in the top twelve. Um, fifteen seconds, or, or, or I think there was something like fifteen seconds between second place and and uh, uh, and the rest. So yeah, take Marcus out of the equation, and it's just really, really close, and it's really exciting. Where do you guys see the Where do you see the Suzuki's being this weekend? Uh, this week, I, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be up to where, where Alex Rins qualifies. Mm, yeah, yeah, and I mean Joanne Mayer's performance here last year essentially got him that Suzuki ride yep. this year. Uh, the fact that he possibly could have won the Moto2 yeah. race. I think he was 21st after the first corner. Yeah. Still finished fourth. 
I can't remember. I think, yeah, he was fourth just off the podium, yeah. Um, so Mayer is real good, really good here. But yeah, I think you, even you go back um, through history, um, I seem to remember uh, Suzuki's having two top, two top sixes in, in 2016. Yeah. Uh, Ian Onnie was on the podium here last year. Um, yeah, I mean, Rins has been strong everywhere now, going back to Mizano last year. So yeah. as you say, David, if he gets his qualifying sort of lie, he'll be in the podium fight too. Yeah, exactly. I think. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But that's it, like, like I said. <clears throat> yeah. What a time to be alive. Yes. And just before we finish, I know Jensen is absolutely starving and I uh, can't wait to get his lips around some of these uh, tacos that we love in Texas. Oh, well, uh, that's how you got me on the show. You bribed me with tacos. So <laughs> it's but, time to pay the piper. But just, I think it would be uh, neglectful to not mention the performance of Miguel Oliveira oh, during the race 100%. weekend in Argentina. Take Marquez out of the equation, my star of the weekend, hands down. Yeah. I think he is doing a quite stunning job uh, at the start of his MotoGP career. And considering where he came from at the Valencia test, you look at the Valencia test and I think uh, Banyaya was like 0.6 off the fastest time and we were getting really excited about it. And Oliveira on the first day was nowhere, like, yeah. you know, plus two seconds back. And we were all a little concerned, is this going to be a, a long year for Miguel? He's worked at it and he's worked at it and he's just understood it. And he's finishing just behind Paul Espargaro, who's been on that bike for more than two seasons now. And it wasn't just like some fluke result. He was there constantly in warm-up, in free practice, in qualifying even. Yeah. He's kicking Zarko's ass at the moment, Yeah, exactly. to be yeah. frank. And I think it's really quite admirable. Yeah, the most interesting thing about KTM is the fact that they've got two really methodical riders in with uh, Oliveira and with Zarco, and Zarco is really struggling because he wants the bike to do a certain thing. Um, uh, Oliveira has no expectations of what a MotoGP bike should be like, so he's just figuring it out, and he's uh, he's absolutely one of the most intelligent people, um, one of the most intelligent riders on the grid probably the most intelligent rider on the grid and um, just digs deep and uh, understands is always looking for understanding so yeah the uh, it's gonna, I'm not sure what the KTM can do here but uh, uh, certainly by mid-season I'll be really excited to see where Oliveira is yeah as this is a, essentially an Argentina show I thought we should get a mention in. and it just I mean I think what he's doing now confirmed my suspicion at the end of last year 2018 wasn't the failure for him in Model 2 with that KTM chassis. I think we have to actually look at what he did was quite incredible to yeah. push Banyaya in the state that Banyaya was in as far as he did. I think that was truly an exceptional achievement. Yeah. Well, boys, I think it is going to be an interesting race weekend. I'm looking forward to spending it with both of you. Uh, we will be doing a show what day? Monday. 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 So we'll have Somehow. another one coming out. So we have the World Superbike show going out today. We have this show going out today. We'll have another MotoGP show going out for you Monday. I think we'll have sometime over this weekend, we'll have another World Superbike show for you from Assen. Assen. So it's a very, 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 very busy day. And, and plenty to talk about from Assen as well. Yeah. And it's yeah. also worth pointing out that uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, there will be little gems coming at you each day from Coda, little... Uh, little tidbits, little yes, uh, little yes. bits of gossip and uh, recordings of rider debriefs. So if you're not a Patreon member, we do, we enthuse that you uh, you sign up and uh, help keep this show on the road, yeah. so to speak. I think and where would you do that, Neil? You would do that at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. 
Look at you. Look at you. Yeah. I, my, my sole job this weekend is to pump the Patreon page with content while you boys do your, your fine duties in the GP paddock. So keep an eye out for that. We certainly appreciate all the Patreon subscribers that are helping keep this show running. Uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, Neil doesn't have a heart to thank you from, but David has an enlarged room from his, his many years on this earth. So it all balances out, <laughs> but, um, Make sure you are following us on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, if you happen to be listening to the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. Say hi in the comments. Give a shout out to uh, the team. We greatly appreciate it. And it helps other listeners find the show in what is Apple's crazy podcasting Nexus search engine thing. Uh, it's horribly designed. So we, we appreciate that very much so. And uh, we'll be talking to you very soon. Bye. 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 My name's David Evan. I said goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>